Welcome to the T-HUD Podcast. I'm Moe. And I'm Leland. And I'm Kieran. We have another guest today. Another one? What is this? Two in a row. Two in a row. It would have been three except the the woman that dodged us for brunch. Right. Which I got to bring up at least one more Uh, time. Yeah, (laughs) yes you do, yeah. (laughs) Because I'm so not tired of hearing about it. (laughs) Okay, that's the last time, I swear, I swear. Uh, Yeah, so we have a video game-centric guest today, uh, which is pretty cool. You know, again, I threw a couple bucks on Craigslist, and you never know what comes crawling out of the woodwork, so... We found Kieran. Yeah, nice to be here. I uh, I was actually, it was my girlfriend was looking on uh, Craigslist and she saw the uh, post you guys made and forwarded it along to me and said, you'd have a blast with this. I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I oh, shot you guys right. an email and it was, uh, it was great to get on here. That's awesome. Well, why don't uh, you tell us a little bit about your background and... Absolutely. Um, so I'm a video, or I was a video game designer for a number of years. I uh, went to school at VFS for game design and uh, proceeded to work QA for a few years, and then went into game design in a couple companies. Um, and now I've transitioned to working into esports full time. So I work for a company that does statistics tracking websites for popular games such as Overwatch and Dota 2. Uh, so we run a couple community sites, and I. Uh, develop products for them and go out to events and get to talk to players and work with uh, tournament organizers and stuff like that to uh, create great products. You've got a, a couple uh, sites that you work for. You've kind of got that that job going there. Yeah. So. yeah, so the company I work for is called Elo Entertainment, and we do a site called Dota Buff, uh, which is the largest community site for uh, Dota 2 specifically. Um, and we also do Overbuff, which is uh, a, a relatively large community site for Overwatch, um, and we also do a couple smaller ones. We developed a fort buff. We did one for Artifact. Um, and those ones aren't quite as popular. But uh, Dota 2 is our mainstay, and that's my primary game and my uh, area of interest. So that's where I spend uh, a lot of my energy and time working on developing the product. Well, I know we, uh, we're definitely interested in esports. Leland and I are about the f- furthest away from sports stars that we could ever be so. <laughs> esports is up and coming we'll uh we'll rely on you for some information i'm at here. least athletic looking okay yeah function form over function is my motto <laughs> yeah and and i mean i i got into esports a lot because of my interest in real sports you know i i spent a lot of time growing up watching hockey and being really competitive in that um and as i was growing up i obviously didn't make the nhl and uh you know eventually got into competitive gaming and it was a great outlet for my competitive spirit and um good way to get that energy out in uh in you know a different form so yeah that's cool that's cool that's and cool. you you pl- also played mostly dota when you were competing yeah yeah um so i actually still compete to this day i I have a team we play relatively competitively we played a land last week uh, and we've been trying to get out to some bigger events and whatnot um but yeah i I played starcraft for a number of years relatively high ranked nothing competitive nothing professional um and then transitioned to dota a few years later and uh, i've been playing dota for the last seven or eight years now all right well, well why don't we get right into banter then yeah why don't we jump into the banter uh you want to lead us off mo yeah, I've actually got two today. Hey, so that's good. For okay. the first time, I don't just show up with one that I find five minutes before the show turns on, goes. But um, they had the uh, Nintendo Switch Lite trailer come out today. Oh. And 
I don't know, Kieran. Have you did? You, have you happened to see the trailer for the Nintendo Switch Lite? I have, and I I figured that was what I was going to bring. But I also figured that everybody else would have seen it too, so I, I I wasn't relying on that. But you know, it's uh, it, it yeah, it looked cool. I'm uh, kind of interested. I mean, this is a very typical Nintendo move. This is something they've done with every single one of their consoles before. They release it, they wait, they make a new version of it, re-release it, get the users at a lower price point. Um, it, it's pretty par for the course from them, but it looks like a cool device and might be worth picking up. Yeah, it's it's in a way it's a little surreal for me because it's like you have this console that's a handheld. That's the whole point of it. And now you're releasing a similarly sized handheld but it's only a handheld and i know i get the you know that it's a little bit cheaper and loses some of the functionality but it's it's just weird to have a handheld version of what is already a handheld yeah uh, yeah yeah it's a handheld version of a handheld version of a console i don't that's like that's like yeah, uh it's like Timothy an or christopher or nolan level stuff inception here. inception that's <laughs> like, just we are within a console everybody. of a console of a console <laughs> down here time moves really slowly <laughs> it doesn't matter how deep we get you still hate or your money your money stretches really far so how much cheaper is the light compared to the a normal switch i was actually too lazy to look that up kieran can you bail me out i can't uh <laughs> i didn't look that up either but um <laughs> okay well i guess it doesn't matter yeah but. But I mean, that, that is, again, like I said, that's kind of the typical Nintendo move is they did it with like, you know, the DS and then the DS Lite and then they did it with the right. 3DS and then they did the 2DS and then they, 2DS, you know, yeah. yeah. So, um, I, you know, you can imagine it'll probably be, you know, 10 to 20% cheaper than the original console, maybe even more um, and have most of the same functionality. It'll play the same games, but, you know, be lacking some of those features like the docking um, and the controllers and whatnot and i actually saw an article somewhere that somebody said uh if you buy the new light console and you buy separate joy cons and then a separate docking station none of which it comes with it ends up costing the same as a switch you know base model um so that's kind of interesting i guess they're kind of just making it a little bit more modular and giving their uh, customers a few more options well and you can get it in turquoise so if you've ever been holding off from a nintendo switch because of that red now that turquoise that you've been waiting for for three years, you can go get it. So, all right, Ridiculous. lame attempt at humor. You'll Ridiculous. hear a lot of that this well, episode. You, you know, I, I yeah, the color schemes are weird. Like, they have a yellow, a turquoise, and then like a gray one. It's like it's a little yeah. bit. It, it's it's a little odd. Like you kind of expect them to, you know, go a little more primary with it or do something. You know, maybe throw back to the uh, Game Boy colors or something like that. But they just kind of went in this odd kind of pastel direction and i i think it looks good it's just well yeah in the gray was so weird in comparison to the other two i mean i as a marketing guy I just took it as they're trying to corner the emo market <laughs> <laughs> the dark gray it's like i can be so sad with my switch um <laughs> now i can be sad on the go <laughs> it actually i it could also be called the vancouver version because it fits very well for mid-july in vancouver <laughs> yeah it's shit weather today yeah. this whole week's been kind of crummy but uh yeah that's my first banter we'll skip huh. around and come that's back to me uh Kieran, oh well did you have another one beside the switch light well so i i was looking around and there wasn't too much else going on today but the uh another interesting thing that i did see um, was that Nintendo updated the original Switch patent and fired uh, and filed 
um, with the FCC to update the original switch. Um, and the notes of the filing that they put in were basically that they were potentially changing the CPU, uh, the motherboard, and the RAM on the original model. Uh, so this might be nothing, but a lot of people are speculating that they might be putting out an updated version of the Switch or just changing the hardware that is shipped out with the base model Switch uh, regardless. So that's kind of interesting. They might might be making some changes there. It might just be a cost thing that nobody ever actually pays attention to. It might ha- not have any impact on performance, but just something to maybe keep an eye on. There could be updates to the uh, base model as I well. I thought I had heard that in addition to the light, they were, we were getting a, a, a super-powered one. I thought I heard yeah, that. Yeah, that, that might be it. Um, huh, interesting. Yeah. Have they switched their production to Taiwan yet or whatever? I, know, I heard they were th- planning on moving out of China because of the U.S. tariff stuff. Not a clue, actually. Okay. Uh, Leland, how about yours? Um, I did, don't really have one. Okay. Great preparation. What's your second? <laughs> All right. Leland, thank you for your contribution. I, I got one that's actually pretty good, good here. And, okay, go uh, ahead. Shoot. So Blizzard just announced that... Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have followed much of the uh, AI involvement in esports recently, but... Um, OpenAI has been running experiments playing Dota 2 for a while, and DeepMind has been playing StarCraft 2. Um, and apparently DeepMind just made a announcement that they're going to be uh, having their bot AlphaStar playing a number of games on the competitive ladder in Europe. So they're actually letting it loose on public matchmaking. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Is that, we, have we come to the point as a species at as gamers that were entertained watching those demos that used to play at the beginning of video games? Because this is a glorified version of that. <laughs> I don't a, know. a little bit. I think this is, I think this is a little bit further on. I actually, um, I actually worked as a tester on OpenAI's Dota 2 bot. And it was really insane how good it was at adapting. You would kind of expect, oh. like you said, like a demo for it to run in a very scripted manner. It would just do things really robotically and buy the script. But like there were so many things that you could throw at it that it would account for, that it would, you know, have a plan for, that it would react to appropriately in a way that you just would expect a human to do. It was, And it was so, so good. It was so hard to beat this thing. They took it to the international level, and they weren't able to beat world-class teams, but they got it really damn close. Wow. So it, it's, I mean, OpenAI's version of it was really damn scary. Um, DeepMind, I watched the initial broadcast of it, and they had it playing against a number of StarCraft pros, um, and they beat those pros pretty handily. These bots are getting pretty scary. So... Would the bot, have you seen it do moves that were pretty creative that you're kind of like, holy shit, did a computer just do that? Yeah. Um, and the thing that's really interesting about these is that they find really odd solutions to things that you never really would consider, but because their level of execution is so high, they can pull them off. So you'll see them take, you know, in, uh, in Dota 2, for example, they'll, you, you'll see them take team fights that no human team would ever think is a good idea because they're low on resources, they're low on health, or they don't have their spell cooldowns or something. But 
uh, the bot will choose to take those fights because they know that they can do everything, you know, to the T. And even at the point where they've been imposed uh, with reaction time limiters um, and actions per minute limiters and stuff like that, they are still executing at a really disgusting level, which just, just kind of shows what you can do as a human if you are thinking of the right moves um, and doing them ahead of time with, you know, whatever limited resources. You might say, oh, that's an impossible fight, but you could do it if you did it just right. So it gives it gives really useful insight on uh, on kind of the way that you could expand your game as a player playing against these things. It's, it's really interesting. I, I got so into it when I was working with these bots. Well, maybe they'll just have us all mesmerized watching the game as uh, in the background it fires the nukes and wipes out human civilization. We'll yeah. Just be like, cool, cool. This, this is how it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got one more piece of uh, banter myself. This is really one I guess is just more for Leland to cry about. But Latino Review uh, interviewed... Koizuma, I think is how you say his name. He's the guy that uh, is in charge of the Switch. And they asked him, what's the chances of a Pokemon Snap sequel ever being released? <laughs> and he shot that dead. He's like, it is not on our plans now or right. forever. It's probably smart. <laughs> so we used to, that was like a niche game that we loved growing up. Yeah. And I just wanted to kind of bring that up. That's sad. I mean, it's, it's a bummer that uh, Pokemon Go is... Uh isn't incorporating some photography into it, you know? Just just take pictures of the Pokemon. Don't capture them and turn them into candy, you know? Anybody have anything else? Nope. 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 Let's move on. All right. Well, I guess we'll launch into our first segment here. So it's time for the Video Game Variety Show. And this uh, segment is called Olympics. Um, yeah, very creative. But uh, this is a little bit of a different segment for us, uh, Karen. Um Admittedly, Leland and I know very little about esports in general, and we just kind of want to ask you some questions about it. You know, just even general stuff. We we have a lot of listener, as we call them, uh, singular, that aren't super into video games. Um, we have a bunch that are, but we have some that aren't super into video games. And just to kind of help them understand what the esports community is, how big it's growing, um, and whatnot. And so... You know, I know your area of expertise is is Dota right now, Dota 2. You know, how big do some of these events get for for watching? Like how many viewers online or in person or um they get up to you know, ridiculous numbers that rival competitive uh traditional sports. Wow. The biggest tournament of the year in Dota 2, which is also the largest prize pool tournament across any esport, um, is coming up this year in August. Uh, and in the past, it's tallied uh, close to 500,000 concurrent viewers just on Twitch. And that's not to mention, uh, you know, restreams and Chinese streams and uh, other worldwide mediums. So, you know, regular concurrence of multiple millions of viewers. Um, and... The amount of money that gets poured into this is absolutely ridiculous. Currently, the prize pool for this tournament is sitting somewhere around $26 million uh, and is wow. only growing from here. Most people are speculating that it's going to end up just over $30 million with generally the first place team getting roughly 40-ish percent of that prize pool. So uh, you can think that every single player that's on the winning team is going to be 
you know, a two to three millionaire instantly upon winning that tournament. <laughs> Jesus. So what contributes to that prize pool and what dictates its total? So every year, the developer of the game, Valve, has put up a base prize pool of $1.6 million. And then they've offered in-game cosmetics and items that players can buy to, you know, to trick out their characters in the game and whatnot. But a portion of those pro- uh, of those profits go directly into the prize pool to be awarded to the top players in the game. So that uh, $26 million, uh, there's another half or two-thirds of that that uh, Valve is holding onto as just pure profit in their pockets. So they're really happy with the whole arrangement. And obviously these players are getting paid better than, you know, a number of athletes in you know, smaller sides, you know, like esports athletes at the top end can be making more money than tennis players, golf players, some NBA players. Um, you know, they, it, this is a real thing. This is big. Yeah. Okay. So what, uh, what's the disparity between genre of, of game video games that are played? Cause you know, the s- particular ones are going to be the largest draw. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you could say, you know, it is comparable to how traditional sports have their markets in different places in the world. Hockey's bigger up here in Canada than it is down in the States where they have baseball and football and basketball. And, you know, there's there's different fields for everything. Dota 2 is really popular. Counter-Strike's really popular. League of Legends is really popular. And there's a lot of, you know, fringe games that are on the side. There's StarCraft. There's Rocket League. There's, you know, formerly Heroes of the Storm. That's gone uh, and a bunch of other little games along the side. I, I can't think of them all off the top of my head, but there are a number of different games that interest different people, and there's an audience for a lot of them. There's kind of become a centralization of esports at the top end, uh, where there's a few big games that kind of cater to different demographics, and a lot of people flock to those. And then there's a few niche ones, and you know, I guess you could say the same about traditional sports. You know, handball is out there, and people get paid to play it, but. When's the last time you saw a handball game on TV? Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I would kind of liken it to that. And I think when a lot of people bring up this discussion, they're like, oh, oh, well, like, you know, everyone watches hockey, but it's like, okay, well, like, what about lacrosse? Lacrosse is Canada's national sport. When's the last time you saw that on TV? You know, there are yeah, different yeah. there are different domains within the uh, realm of esports, just like there are in traditional sports. So, so you know, if I were to watch, so this biggest Dota tournament, for example, is is pay-per-view a thing like do you have to pay to watch these streams i'm guessing a bunch of pirated but no they're uh they're completely hosted on twitch supported uh entirely by advertisements and actually the international is a is a special tournament um in that because the developer of the game themselves run it and because they reap such large profits from this prize pool sharing system they don't run any advertisements they don't have any sponsorships and they don't have any pay-per-view the entire event is free to watch in 1080p on twitch um, and you can spectate the entire event with no plugs, no ads, no anything in your way. Throughout the rest of the year, there's a lot of tournaments that go on that are run by independent organizers. Uh, and they obviously have to make ends meet. They have expenses and they have to run the events and they don't get to do something like this uh, kind of profit sharing prize pool boosting thing. So they have to run advertisements, they have sponsors, they get the players to do ads for certain products and whatnot, um, and it ends up supported very much similar to traditional sports again, where, you know, you can, I guess you do pay for, uh, you know, the channels to watch a hockey game or something, but once you're watching it, you know, you just have a couple ads during the period break and that kind of 
uh, balances it all out. So, have you? <laughs> this kind of sounds like a dumb question because, but I can't assume. Have you been to any mi- or many esports uh, tournaments? Like, like actually gone to the stadium and watched or commentated? Uh, yeah. So I. I've attended the International, which is this big yearly tournament, uh, every year for the last four years since 2015, I guess, uh, was the first year I went. Um, and I probably won't be going this year because they relocated it to China and I'm going to have a hard time traveling over there. Um, but I've gone to every year aside from that. But I do get out to a lot of events and because of my work, because I work in esports, I've been able to go to a few others. So uh, recently I traveled to Poland to go to ESL1 in Katowice. Um, and I'm also, or I was supposed to be going to another ESL event either in, uh, Hamburg or Birmingham sometime this next year. So, um, I've gotten to travel around to a number of these things and, uh, you know, it's always a real blast. The energy in the arena is, uh, is crazy. It's awesome to get to talk to people with similar interests as you. It feels very much like a hockey game or something like that. But the cool thing is that because these events tend to get packed into tournaments that happen on weekends as opposed to just singular game days that happen at regular intervals, you end up with full days of these events. So you get to walk around a full stadium from 8 in the morning to 10 at night, um, and you get to talk to people and you get to watch a lot of games. And it ends up a little bit exhausting, but it does. it's always really fun and there's always a great atmosphere around it. Well, and part of where I wanted to go with that is... What is the fan experience like in person? And I guess what I'm asking for is kind of, is it mature enough as a sort of sporting event that, you know, like, this is going to sound maybe weird to ask, but, that, you know, they are fully concessioned and, you know, maybe have alcohol sales and gift shops and things like that. Is that all there now? Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the weird thing with spectating in esports is, like I said, these tend to be very centralized, big one-off events. Um, so it's it's not so much like you would think about a typical hockey game where you can go, you know, every other day of the week throughout the entirety of a season. Uh, you know, the international comes once a year. And there are three, they call them majors, uh, that happen throughout the year. There's three minors. Um, and each of those events is a big thing. It happens on a weekend. You can go out there and they fill stadiums. Um, actually the last international was held at Rogers arena here in Vancouver. Uh, and it sold the arena out completely. They had all the bars running. Obviously there, all the, uh, Canucks, you know, merch shops were turned into Dota two gift shops. You could buy t-shirts and plushies and all that sort of stuff. And there were after parties. Everyone was out at bars recently, uh, or like after the events and stuff. The uh, the Pints downtown, which is a you know popular bar here in Vancouver for anyone listening, uh, that was filled every single night as kind of the after party destination for most people. So uh, it really is a full big sporting event uh, with you know all the merits and hype or more than uh, that of traditional sports. That is so cool. That's interesting. Yeah, um, not quite the reach, obviously, but the when it's there, it's big, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's a lot of people that are in esports that are toying with the uh, model that traditional sports run with. Uh, the Overwatch League is the biggest example of this, uh, where they're trying to get localized teams that play in arenas in a home city. Uh, so Vancouver, you know, our hometown has uh, the Vancouver Titans, and they're actually owned by the Aquilini Group, who owns the Vancouver Canucks whoa yeah and so that team is 
currently playing in California because the league is brand new and they've basically gotten all the teams to just live in California and play in one arena while they broadcast out to Twitch and get the league rolling. And their goal is essentially to move all the teams out to their hometowns and have the teams fly around and play localized games as as the league matures and gets uh, more sponsors and more money involved in it. Uh, there's still a lot of speculation and debate within the esports community about whether or not that's going to be a viable method if people that are localized in a city are going to show up for every single game and fill a stadium and, you know, provide enough hype and uh, recurring engagement to, you know, to compete with traditional sports in a way that, you know, the Canucks might draw a crowd. But... So far, the, you know, kind of traditional esports method has been these kind of big one-off events, which are just spectacular enough that they always sell out and they always fill a stadium and make it worth the giant production. Gotcha. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, keep drawing the comparison to hockey, but same with the NHL. you got cities with teams that nobody shows up for. You're going to end up with a fucking Phoenix Coyote <laughs> scenario <laughs> yeah. on your hand, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'll eventually move them to a place where the money is there and they're appreciated. But, you're, yeah, you've got to get that foundation, I guess. Yeah. Right? And I guess you have to make sure the rest, everything else is still – I mean, the NHL as an organization, organization as a whole is able to prop itself up and their profits across all of the successful cities and still have these – lesser successes in these other cities but still able to get growth out of both sides of the spectrum yeah exactly and that and that brings up a whole debate that we probably won't get into but like there is a lot of discussion within esports about what the best model is for a game to sustain itself as a product for viewers to watch you know the overwatch league run by blizzard they are very adamant about making this franchise league system work so they sell slots in this league to investors like the aquilini group who want to buy in and own a team and that comes with you know their own oversight and their own restrictions and their own rules about how you can run the teams and when the teams are going to play what the schedule is what the point system in the league is all that sort of stuff is controlled by them whereas in a game like dota 2 Valve runs this one big tournament I've been talking about, the International, mm-hmm. and everything else they're hands-off on. Well, mostly hands-off. They have a couple, like, sanctioned events that they uh, they give approval to, but every other event is run by an independent organizer, and they stay out of it. So anyone can just go and run a Dota tournament and invite all the best teams to come play, and if you have a big enough prize pool, the teams will come play because they want to earn some money. Uh, so there's a whole spectrum of cool and weird events that get run in Dota where there's, you know, uh, there's a broadcast company down in California that runs an event called the summit where they just invite all the players out to a house and they play all the games in the house and it's a big house party and they get the players to cast the games. And it's a really cool kind of like, you know, chill, low pressure environment that people love watching because the players are laid back and they're personable and all that sort of stuff. And you'd never see something like that happen in the Overwatch League because everything is by the books. It's it's a big production that is run by one single entity. So that is a whole debate, and you know I, I won't go too far into it. But you know that there's definitely a lot of speculation within the esports community about what's best and what's going to be more sustainable and what's going to draw in the bigger profits and what's going to attract the sponsors and all that sort of stuff. So right, right, or and or kill the passion for the sport that the audience and the players have, and which I'm, I'm assuming both sides are going to have their myriad list of pros and cons for each, right? Yeah. So, but okay, so could uh, possibly like getting esports added 
as part of the Olympics, how much would that help to for visibility for for the sport for esports in general? And how does that factor into that conversation too, which I think is is an interesting conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And I think the, so, so the Olympics have actually been experimenting with bringing in esports. So the most recent Olympics that were held, I can't even remember. I don't, I don't watch. I think it was Hong Kong, Beijing, the most recent Olympics, they held a, uh, esports tournament that ran alongside the Olympics. It happened like the week before the Olympics. Right. But the IOC had nothing to do with that one. Yeah. Well, I think they did. I think they like sanctioned it or they like, it was an experiment for them. So they kind of like had it run by a third party, but they were overseeing it or something along those lines. Okay. Um, and you know, it was a pretty minor tournament on the scale of things, uh, you know, in comparison to all of these other events I've been talking about. Uh, but it, it, there is interest from the Olympic Committee. But I think the general reigning uh, train of thought amongst esports professionals and organizers and tournament admins and stuff is that esports typically, we don't, there, there's a lot of this debate about legitimizing it through traditional media. What if we can get it on ESPN? Well, you know, it'll, that'll bring in so much exposure. What if we can get it on on TV, on regular TV channels, you know? And it always comes around to this idea of like, okay, do we like, does esports need that? Are we attracting an audience that's going to actually be engaged in it? Because, you know, you get, you can find articles out there from the few times that esports has cracked on the TV. I think ESPN has put the Overwatch League on there a few times and every time it's on there, there's a flurry of tweets from, you know, the typical dad types out there going, why is there video games on TV? This isn't sports. This is awful. I don't want to watch this. This is garbage. ESPN, what are you doing? Everything's going to crap. The kids are stupid, you know? Um, and it, it, it stirs up this whole discussion of like, do we need traditional media to succeed? You know, esports is very much an internet age thing. You know, when we, when I go to watch esports, I don't sit at my TV and flip through the channels. I go straight to twitch.tv. I go straight to YouTube and I watch it from my computer. And if I want to watch it on my couch, I just Chromecast it. You know, it, it's it's very much a new tech thing. And I think the new generation that's coming up is growing up with this and it's normal to them. It's not odd. It's not weird. It's not different. And I think for the most part, it's going to be a pretty hard sell to convince most older people that are more invested in traditional sports and see this as some dumb new age crap to get on board. And I don't think we really need that. I think as the years have gone on, more and more people have just kind of grown up with this and it's become this, it's this self-sustaining thing. And it's, it's kind of interesting because it is a very young business and movement. You know, I know senior VPs of esports companies that are like in their early thirties and, it's because like this is a brand new industry and as it comes up it's just pulling from the bottom it really like i i personally don't think we need to be legitimized by the olympics by espn by any traditional tv if it's there and they want to broadcast it and they want to hop on the train and try to make some money off of it great more people are watching it but it's not going to die without it it's not living or breathing by the approval of Fox News and ESPN and TSN, like, you know, we don't care. It, it's <laughs> going to live. It's already profitable. It's already big. It's already growing. And, you know, being on TV might help that. But that's about all it is. It's still going to increase. It's still going to grow. 
uh, regardless. Yeah. No, that is really cool. Um, that's really cool how it's kind of uh, esports is carving out its own way of doing things. And like you said, it's like you want to come along and take a piece of the pie, that's fine. But, you know, we're not going to be penciled into doing things necessarily the traditional way. Yet, I totally do see what you're saying, too, about that dichotomy, why some people would say, well, we have to engage these traditional streams. That's the only way to relevancy. I agree with you. I don't think it is. Um, I know a lot of people that do Twitch, love Twitch. And I mean, frankly, if you're that into a computer or video game, you're tech savvy enough, like you said, to just Chromecast the thing with, you know, a bag of Doritos on your lap or something like that. Exactly. Like, it's not rocket science. So last major question I've got for you actually refers to your website. And what it is, is how big are stats, statistics in big data when it comes to esports? And what is that data used for primarily? Like, is it just curiosity from fans? Do other teams use it to, you know, look up who's playing what character and what their efficiency is? Or, yeah, just shed some light on that. Yeah. Uh, so analytics in esports is a really cool and interesting field because the data that can be grabbed from the game files itself is far and away more extensive than the typical stats you would find on any sports stats tracking site. Uh, because you don't have to pay a guy as the league to sit there and watch a hockey game and go, okay, he took a shot, that's this guy, okay, that guy got a save. You know, nobody has to record that. It's all done by the program. So a lot of these companies are building their games with, you know, huge amounts of statistics tracking built right in. And that's what our company leverages to form DotaBuff. So if you go on DotaBuff, you can see a record of every match you've ever played, the amount of kills or deaths or assists that you got in that game, uh, you know, the gold that you gained during that game, a number of other stats. And we have a premium offering as well that breaks it down even further to a point where we have bots that download the replays uh, that everybody plays and we get slews of, or like a whole slew of different statistics from that. So we can tell you exactly what you were doing at any moment in the game we can give you a visualization heat maps of where you went and where you didn't go what you you know where you were fighting where you were farming all of these different things so we have you know technology at our backs to create some of the most advanced you know sports statistic tracking ever at our fingertips for these games and you know because of the advantage of working with a digital medium video games you know, I would say in, in some regards, uh, esports statistics is already ahead of traditional sports. So it's it's a really fascinating area to be in. And it, it really kind of interests me. And, you know, teams use this stuff uh, like crazy. There are premium offerings that cost, you know, multiple thousands of dollars a month in licensing that professional teams license so that they can get professional insight on their opponents and figure out exactly what their opponents are doing, what they're training with, what their habits are, so that they can prep for big tournaments with this stuff. So most teams, even though like, you know, when you look at a, again, a traditional sports team, you have all the players, but then you have all the backline staff. You have like the equipment managers, you have the trainers, you have the health, uh, the, you know, the physicians, the doctors, the coaches, etc. And in esports, analysts have like jumped up pretty quickly to being a necessary part of an esports org. Most professional teams have, you know, their five or six player roster they have a coach and an analyst. And that's like the core of the team. And a lot of the professional orgs employ doctors and nutritionists and all that stuff on the side to keep their players healthy. But like 
analysis of the games is a huge piece of it that gets uh, gets started right off the bat. Wow. Yeah, that's that's, that's why I was the one question I had was can you look like watching a tape of another team play a ball game? <laughs> that's that's cool. But I the like that. the thing is like Karen said, you know, if you want that data in a regular sports game, someone actually has to be there with a pen and paper right. taking it. But computers are intrinsically made to record in all sorts of ways and that's that's really cool. I I had no clue that most major teams would now hire an analytics person. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's weird in a way that it kind of mimics real sports that way, like with Moneyball and whatnot. You know, analytics wasn't a big thing 25 years ago. And now, you know, every, for example, NHL hockey team is going to have a capologist and, and uh, you know, well, capology is a little bit different, but uh, statistical analysis. And some teams are huge into it, like, you know, Toronto and I think the much maligned by Leland Phoenix Coyotes. Yeah, <laughs> they, they need Kieran's website. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, that's the great thing is that like there is so much data available. You don't have to do as much work to get so much more out of it. You know, before I even started working with the company that I work for now, I was a big user of their website because I was, you know, a competitive Dota player and just being able to go to my match page and just get like, you know, a website based highlight of everything that I did in the course of a game, you know, I, on my lunch break at work, I would just pop it open on my phone and be like, man, this is what I need to need to do to get better. And it was an incredible improvement tool. And like to get that in traditional sports, you like, you need coaches, you need, you know, you need to set up video cameras. You need to like, um, you know, you need to like have somebody to parse that for you and tell you like, okay, your shot's a little off, your balance is weird, like you need to kind of put more into it or something. And, you know, we can have automated tools that do that. We can track your trends and say like, you're you're underperforming in this area. And, you know, we surface that to people and it helps them get so much more out of their game experience. It's, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend, for example, she just started playing Dota 2 in the last year that she was dating me. And, uh, you know, she never really bothered to look at the website. And as she got more engaged and more engaged, she actually found herself using it more. And then she messaged me one day and said, hey, can you give me the premium subscription on there? Because I, I, I want to, like, see more stuff. And, like, just as that engagement builds, you obviously want to see yourself improve more and uh you know it, it gives you access to that it's it's really hardly you know i play beer league hockey and other stuff like that and really there's no way to figure out what you're doing wrong besides your teammates chirping you and that's about it <laughs> yeah no that's crazy that's it, it is sports science it is quite literally sports science being brought into the digital age I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. You got anything else, Leland? Yeah, my last thing was uh, I just wanted to ask about performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The high, like, especially at the Red highest Bull? tiers. Red and, Bull? Uh, no, things like, like Adderall. Adderall and Adderall, shit, yeah. yeah. And even, um, like, Parkinson's medicine to, to calm the nerves and that kind of oh, shit. Yeah. What, what exactly has been your experience with, with that kind of stuff? So, my personal experience, uh, I've never touched any of it and i don't know anybody personally who has but there was a big thing about it in esports a while back um i think a counter-strike professional uh went on record basically saying that he you know his entire team was on adderall when they won the championship and he he was asked about his deadpan reaction when they won 
because like you know they were like were you just shocked were you like were, you know no, were you were just overcome fuck. you were just out yeah. of, uh, you didn't have words and he and he was like I, we were all just we were all just messed up on Adderall man like and <laughs> and it it stirred up That's this crazy. big thing and I think like there was uh, there was a period where a lot of the major tournaments were running drug tests uh, checking for Adderall and Ritalin and a couple other uh, a couple other attention drugs and whatnot um and i know a lot of people still do abuse that stuff just to get through long practice sessions you know the same people use adderall and adhd medicine to uh study to study yeah to get get through their university courses and stuff and so that kind of same stuff gets applied to esports uh for sure but i don't know how prevalent it is at the top end uh i think there's Enough of a focus on longevity in esports now that a lot of these professional teams have nutritionists, they have people on staff that are working to help keep their players healthy, keep them engaged, keep them practicing for long periods of time in a natural and healthy way. Certainly not all of them. There's probably still some corruption, some weird stuff going on out there. Uh, But honestly, I couldn't speak to the extent of it. And like I said, there was a period where tournaments were cracking down on it. So that might have just dissuaded it and pushed it into the dark. Right. So... The the regulating body is literally just the tournament organizer. Like the, otherwise, that's there's no uh, because there is no large overseeing figurehead organization for all. Because you like you said, anyone can start uh, throw up a tournament if yep. they can attract attract the players to it. It's strictly just on a tournament by tournament basis to enforce or not enforce it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure the more franchise leagues like the Overwatch League are looking into that a lot more seriously. Uh, in terms of Dota 2, like I said, there's so many different bodies that control the tournaments that I couldn't say that there's a blanket policy across all of them. Right. You know, the I think I'm pretty sure the International does something. Um, I can't say for sure. I don't know. I don't know the back uh, backside of that. But yeah, it would be up to the independent tournament organizers because if you want to have a player that playing, even if they're doing drugs, you can't. There's nothing stopping. It's your own tournament. Right. It's your own whatever. So yeah, I, I again, I don't know the extent of the pervasiveness of it. From what I've seen, the scene is pretty relatively clean. I don't know a lot of people that are, you know, hardcore abusers of it. And uh, again, it's, you know, those drugs, it's not a sustainable thing because you can get hooked on them and you can see, you know, cognitive decline after enough usage of it. And a lot of these pros are getting to a point where they've been playing for a number of years. Um, you know, the captain of the top team in the world right now in Dota 2, he's been he's been at every single international and we're heading into TI9. So he's been playing this game for nine years at a top competitive level. You can't be doing that on Adderall. Right. So he's just he's just good at it. Um, and there's others who do, but like like I said, I can't speak to the extent. I think it's relatively minimal uh, in Dota, in the game that I know. It could be worse in other games. Cool. Interesting. All right. Well, that very was enlightening kind of, discussion. Kind of all I had. Yeah, yeah. Myself as well. That's uh, yeah. That is really really neat. I'm definitely some things to think about, and I definitely see esports. Like when I say in a new light, it doesn't mean. I ever looked down on it because I wasn't one of those snobs, but I certainly didn't know it's become so much more refined and just closer to sports or to what I think of as a as sporting event. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, the trajectory of esports has been a huge boom in the most recent years. And there's been some speculation that that's going to regress a little bit, but, you know... It, 
you know, people exaggerating will say the bubble's going to pop. But, you know, esports is definitely here to stay. There's definitely communities for it. There's definitely viewership. There's, you know, there's uh, when sponsors put their money into it, they are seeing returns. But there's a lot of companies that are completely overinflated in their valuations. There are, uh, you know, leagues that have yet to prove what they can do. Again, the the Overwatch League hasn't proven out the city franchise model yet. They haven't done it. We have the Vancouver Titans, but they live and play in California and they've never been to Vancouver. It, so that, <laughs> you know, it, so there are, right. there are some hurdles to overcome and we still have yet to figure out what the best system is for any given esport, and there's probably going to be some nuance to the actual answer on it. But uh, you know, it's coming up, and it's it's a big thing, and it's kind of here to stay. And uh, I I love it; it's my life. Well, and I think the main thing, like anything getting off the ground, has has to go through its trials and tribulations, and a misstep here or there is never shouldn't be a reason to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Yeah, awesome. Awesome. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the crazy about cardboard, in which we're talking about co-op games. Yeah, love them. You do know you I, do you love do you prefer cooperative games over competitive? Oh, games? Oh, absolutely. It's not even. I cool. feel like we've had this conversation before. We touched on a few favorite games in one of our earliest episodes, right. and yeah, I was yeah, picking a right. lot of co-op games, and that's where <laughs> right, it came from. Right, right, right. But when I first uh, interviewed Kieran about coming on the show, you know, I was looking for a guest who was kind of into cardboard stuff, and Kieran's like, yeah, I'm totally into board games. So it's it pretty sweet, and this just seemed uh, kind of a natural topic to jump into. Well, okay, Kieran, well, do, you, you, do you prefer cooperative over competitive? No, I'm I'm yeah, a super competitive. Yeah, as 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 you can tell from that whole discussion there, I'm yeah, a super exactly, competitive right? person. Um, and I love high strategy board games. Uh, but I am friends with a lot of people that hate that stuff. So I right. do end up playing a lot of co uh, op games. Um, and my biggest struggle with them is just trying not to overly micromanage my friends because sometimes right. I'm like, yeah. like oh you gotta do this you gotta trade me this card here and go there and like you do this on your turn and then and then he can do that on his turn and it'll it'll all work out <laughs> just chill out man like, yeah. like let me do it because you're do it. you're okay. four steps ahead and yeah. they're still trying to figure out what their asymmetric power does it's yeah like... <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well it's it's interesting I think I'm gonna flip around what we're gonna do here for a moment because I think it's a, a natural place to jump into here but um, I, I did want to bring up pandemic which is like one of the most famous cooperative board games and I I could totally see that as a game where someone with a dominant competitive personality would try to micromanage because yeah. you've got the whole world there you've got this disease spreading yeah absolutely it's like no no you do not clean up the disease in Budapest. You get your ass to Johannesburg. Right. Get to get right the soul. Now. You clean up the red. I'll take care of the black. You go. You over there. Take care of the blue. That actually does sound. Yellow like some is of our games. not an issue right now, so just ignore it. <laughs> that sounds like some of our games. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to a lot of people now, Pandemic is one of those games that they're like, oh yeah, this was one of my gateway games, and it was personally one of my gateway games it was one of the first like oh, yeah. five games that i ever purchased in this getting into the hobby uh that and like betrayal at house on, on the hill yeah my basically my main two gateway games but i mean even before that people you speak to people who have maybe been in the hobby a little longer mm -hmm. and one of their first games very common i've heard is they'll uh talk about arkham horror being oh. the, one of the one of the games that got them into the hobby and the original edition of that came out in like 87. 
And even back then, it was very boiled down, much like Pandemic is, I think, uh, like much, much more simplified. Uh, and then Fantasy Flight came along in 2005, then they revised. So I really think it gets overlooked a little bit as kind of the the precursor to, to really the popularity of, of cooperative games, in my opinion, anyways. Do you have any experience with uh, Pandemic there, Karen? Yeah, I, uh, I played it a lot. Actually, I, when I first bought Pandemic, uh, I bought it for my dad as a Christmas gift. And uh, as I was, I had it just sitting at my desk at work. And a coworker of mine who's a big board game junkie said, oh, you bought Pandemic? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's a Christmas gift. And he, uh, he offered to trade me my new box version of Pandemic for his older version with two expansion packs that he had only ever played once. Um, and he's a huge collector, and he just wanted the board with the fancy new graphics on it. Yeah. So he yeah. gave me his old version with a couple expansion packs, and I was like, "That's yeah, that's a deal. All right. So I did that and gave my dad the uh, uh, the expansions with it, and we've always had a blast with it. It's uh, it's a fantastic game. It is It is great. It, it's a good game. Um, and it definitely has, no pun intended, really taken on its own legacy. Um, just so many different iterations of it, like uh, Pandemic Iberia, um, Fall of Rome, uh, uh, the Cthulhu version of Pandemic as well. Yeah. Um, not to mention, you know, a lot of since a lot of cooperative games use uh, very similar mechanics and how the how just how the game runs itself. The game's little own AI. Uh, Matt Leacock having you know, I don't know, saying revolutionizing cooperative board gaming is a little hyperbolic. Um, but Matt Leacock certainly knows how to design a cooperative game, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love the idea when we first played it that, you know, I'll admit it, I'm a less competitive guy. I'm a more cooperative guy. But the fact that you're taking on this like worldwide faceless, nameless plague that's creating this like miasma everywhere at random. And it creates like a level of panic in a feeling of overwhelm because it's a damn hard game. I think we won it once. It can ever. be difficult. And see, so the key, the key to that, and this is going to, again, lead into one of the points uh, we want to talk about here right. uh, as far as what makes a good or right. a bad co-op. The, the, I think uh, the, one of the key selling points of Pandemic and it's the way it, the way it runs, the game runs itself, is that it seemingly at face value it's random, but it is not random. Mm. it is it's just the way the epidemic cards work where you take your discard a pile of where you've already put out virus cubes shuffle it up and it goes right back on top meaning those places that you thought you cured will get hit again or can get hit again that that's part of that's like the that's what makes the game the game right like that's that's what makes it pandemic so just that 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 handle and that handling of the randomness but not making it random so there is so it so it get it still gives the players agency to be able to deal with what the the game is throwing at you as a group and and hopefully you can figure it out and if you are if you are uh, smart enough and strategic enough um, with your action economy in which the game gives you another thing that makes a co-op good is a a, a good and tight action economy then then you can then you can be successful and you feel like yes we've I've overcome this monster of a <laughs> of a game kind of thing. Um, well, maybe let's jump in there. Like, what in our different opinions uh, makes a good cooperative board game? And uh, maybe start with Kieran on that one. When you do play co-op, uh, what really sticks out for you is something that makes it enjoyable. So 
the thing that really makes it enjoyable for me is the the asymmetry of each player on mm. the cooperating team. Uh, I think a lot of these games derive a lot of their cool interactions from the fact that each character has a different skill set or a different move set. Um, and a lot of the games have like a basic move set. You can all move, you can all remove, you know, cubes of the disease, but you know, there's you know, a researcher can get, uh, you know, research cures faster. You can have the, um, you know, the operations expert building all the, uh, what do you call it? The depots around the, around the world and stuff. So all of those, uh, types of asymmetries really make it interesting because it no longer becomes this thing of optimizing the entire table's move set in one round it becomes optimizing your move set so that the next person can optimize theirs so that that next person can optimize theirs it creates a much more interesting cascade of actions that could possibly happen yeah uh, you know it's i mean that is my number one point myself is that asymmetry i think that's honestly the biggest selling point of these games there is an amazing feeling when you do get that symmetry going as a team right and you start rolling and uh yeah i mean i i think well you know what i won't go there just yet but i think the i'll just quickly mention the flip side's true so if there's a game that's too symmetrical in its co-op then i kind of lose interest in it but right the, i think as different the powers are and the more challenge there is to make them interact yet you have big potential. I think that makes for a fantastic. Yeah, no, game. I completely agree with both of you. And I also think that depending on the depth of that asymmetry, uh, like you mentioned, Moby will depend on your, uh, a particular player's engagement. And I also think that the, the deeper that asymmetry is, the less inclined the game itself is to having an alpha gamer. Whereas if you, if you need to be focused on your own power, then it's going to be very difficult for you to focus on the rest of the tables and try to take it, take control of it. Classic example of that, and I think why a lot of people love it, is Spirit Island. That game, is, one, it's very difficult, and that's another one of my points, challenging gameplay. Yeah. Uh, Spirit Island can be very difficult, and the, the individual spirits that you play as are so varied, not just in the powers that are printed on their board but also the deck of cards that you get uh, that are power specific as well it offers so much unique gameplay player to player that it is impossible to try to run that game when you're playing if you're playing with like, with like four people you you can't do it like it's, that's ridiculous you mm. have to be some crazy idiot savant spirit island player <laughs> and have everything memorized <laughs> and of course you need access to everyone's hand of, of cards and so I, I think there's kind of that, uh, that flux area where, where you know, there's a, there's a tipping point, of course. But on, if you can balance that seesaw, then I think you've you got a real gem on your hands. Yeah. yeah. It, no, go, go ahead, Karen. Yeah, and I was, I was going to say, I think, um, you know, off your point of difficulty there, the, uh, the next thing that I'd say would make a good co-op board game is just that uh, you know, I think you said earlier, kind of the the board AI system or um, or whatever that happens to be. I think there's a lot of interesting ways that I've seen you know the game designers make a game replayable by designing a really cool system that um, that you know creates the dynamics that you're playing against on the board. Uh, and replayability is really challenged in those systems. Because, uh, you know, in a bad or poorly designed system like that, you end up with 
the same game every time you play it. Whereas in a really good one, again, um, you know, Pandemic is a pretty damn good example of that, where every time you reshuffle that deck, you're going to have different cities being hit on different corners of the world, and you're going to have different cards in your hand, which allow you to travel to different places, which makes every single game completely dynamic. And I think that's really important. Yeah, it's, um, you know, this is an interesting one to say, but I, I need in this, I guess this is related to difficulty in a way. But I need to feel an impending feeling of dread at some point, win or lose. Usually lose with these games. <laughs> right, right. Win or lose, I need to feel this dread that it's like me and my friends in the foxhole versus the world. You know, almost right. like a superhero thing with just this. Sure, sure. This big thing. And, you know, it's funny because Kieran doesn't know me well enough to, you know, care about this. But Leland's probably surprised hearing me personally begging for a challenge when it comes to yeah, game. right. <laughs> I have a reputation for liking, especially when it comes to video games, just focusing on the story and playing the game on the easiest difficulty right. possible. But when it comes to cooperative board games, yeah. That's so is that because it's because of the shared experience? Yeah. And it's the fact that I'm sharing this challenge with my friends. Right. And it's like we're climbing a mountain You together. don't have to overcome it all on your lonesome. Well, in the the story is overcoming the challenge with my friends. That's right. what makes oh, the good story. Okay. That like totally that makes one sense. time we beat Pandemic. Or, totally I hate sense. to say it, but with listener Mike when we played Flashpoint. Oh, Flashpoint virus. And yeah. he was he was in the truck because that was a special truck. ability and it helped win us the game. Finding a driver li- in the It game literally truck. did. Yeah, you're right. And that makes a cool story because I right. remember that and I can't remember as much as I like it, I can't remember most of my Axis and Allies global stories. Because right. There is something about just right. the uniqueness. Well, of yeah. I mean, obviously that is apples to oranges, that comparison. But I understand the point that you're trying to make. And yeah, you are right. It does make, it can make memorable moments. And I never really even... That totally makes sense that, yes, the, playing the game itself is the story of the game. I mean, that's what the game is really trying to offer to you. I like that. I like that. So, okay. So that sense of dread. Now, I know we've only played it once, but uh, our gameplay of Black Orchestra... Yeah. Did you get that sense of dread from that game? Oh, absolutely. Really? I, I got it. Okay. I got it at the end. Okay. Because we thought we were going to lose. Yeah. And I remember we basically pulled a Matrix guns, lots of guns, and strapped them all to Marty <laughs> and then forced Marty in well, on this no, like, that's, suicidal That's not quite how it went. But Karen, are you familiar, familiar with Black Orchestra? No, I'm not. Um, so it's, it's basically uh, you all play nazi defectors and your goal is to assassinate hitler okay it's set during world war ii very historically accurate as well which is also a big draw for a lot of people to the game Mm -hmm. and basically you you have this board um with all these german cities on it and you know there's uh gestapo officers like ss officers that move around the board that you need to avoid um your your little player track has like a suspicion meter so you know they if they suspect you too much and they get you, they'll throw you, throw you in jail and then they'll, they'll try to interrogate you, which is a really cool part of that game. But basically you're, you're getting these like assassination plots and you need to, it's all, it's almost like a pick up and deliver ish kind of aspects to where you have to go to these places to find the, the pieces you need to fulfill the assassination plot. And as you're moving through the phases of the game, Hitler gets more difficult to assassinate or he, he and then he moves on the map and he maybe get, opens up other types of assassination plots. It's really cool. Very interesting. 
But I don't know that I felt the dread playing that game. I mean, yeah, you have the suspicion meter. I think I got thrown in jail once and interrogated one time. Well, you did. Yeah. Are we talking about a board game here? Aha. Uh-huh. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so you didn't feel the dread even at the end, though? I don't. Well, see, we lost at the end, though. We didn't win. Oh, we didn't we win. We lost, okay. and we're like, okay, wait, what if we did this? And then, like, Marty rolled. Oh, we, that's right. Yeah. Okay, I forgot about that. So we ended up that. losing. I forgot about that. Okay. For some reason, see, I reframe my memory that there was a glorious yes, end of course. the story. But I will say, just because I didn't feel that sense of dread that draws you to the game, certainly doesn't mean that I disliked the game. I had a hell of a time playing it. Well, and and I would say to that that I think it's you know when you when you're talking about that sense of dread, really that is you know the the kind of ramp up mechanics that the board uses to kind of create the tension. But I've also experienced the complete opposite where that dread has turned me off of the game because it feels artificially imposed. Hmm. Where, you know, it feels like only the last few turns of a game matters because the game ramps up in such a way that you're basically just preparing for the few hellish turns where everything goes to shit and you have to decide if you're going to be able to... Weather that storm. Yeah, you're going to have to prove that you can weather the storm, right? Right. And I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely not trashing the game. I really love it, and I replay it a lot. But uh, a game I have called The Captain is Dead. It's a co-op board game where you're a crew uh, stranded on a ship, and you have aliens invading, and your engines are down, and you have to get your engines back up to fly away and get away from this invading fleet. So the board has a bunch of different rooms on a ship. You spend your actions to move around, and then you can spend actions to repair certain parts of the ship. And all the while, you're being bombarded by cards that introduce aliens or, you know, destroy things that you've built or take down your comms so you can't trade cards, etc. But the way that game ramps up is that as you play through the deck, there's an instance deck, or I can't remember what they call it, but yeah, the, the deck with all the cards that cause bad stuff to happen, they just get harder as you go along. There's three tiers. And... The game is kind of engineered so that by the time you get to the point where your engines are almost restored, you're into the two or three star um, uh, incident cards and the game gets really, really tough. And you do feel like you're kind of just on a clock. You get to that end point and you're like, okay, we have one engine piece left to repair, but everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Can we just get that last card? And like, it feels like it's really just crunching you as opposed to randomly happening. Like in pandemic, you know, where you're just kind of like on edge on like, when's that epidemic going to happen? When's that last breakout going to happen? Oh no, is it going to cause a change reaction? Like you just kind of know you're like, okay, we're out of tier two cards. Shit's getting ugly soon. And I, I kind of feel like I don't like that because that sense of dread where you're like, okay, everything is, is going to hell can feel artificially imposed. Yeah. And there's, you know, when it gets hopeless, it's like, why am I even playing anymore? Like when it's truly hopeless, what's that alien game that we played the cards where they come through the air vents and they move through the rooms? We played a lot. Oh, um, Legendary. Yeah. Legendary yeah. Encounters Alien. Legendary yeah. Encounters Alien. There are times in the game that we played a lot where you know you're going to lose. Yes. And it does get frustrating There's to play of the game. Do. You're right. And but, but, Okay. But that's not because of the game. That is because we're shit at it. That's a that's really? a yes. That is a deck building cooperative card game where you play through the alien movies. Right. And if you don't build your deck 
properly, then you're going to have a hard time. If you're crappy at building your deck and you have a shitty deck that you're playing with, you're going to have a hard time because because the, those that game does have that I would say maybe not steady ramp up in difficulty um you know you do hit certain points where there is a bit of a spike maybe two or three spikes as you're playing it and i think if you're behind the curve on those spikes then you're you're just fucked (laughs) (laughs) yeah which has happened to us a few times i don't know i i feel like we tried to to always build our decks as good as possible well of course you try and and there there is uh there is actually quite a bit of randomness to that as well because you only get to see five, the top five cards of this deck that you assemble and shuffle. So yes, there is that that random element aspect. Also, the random element of how the cards come off of the 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 bad guy deck and move into the complex, basically, right? So yes, there is quite a bit of chance that can also really just fuck you. So that's a valid point. Let's move into what makes a bad co-op uh, game design here. And I mean, the first I've got, you can say this is a cop-out, but it is, you know, basically where characters are too symmetrical, they don't defer, you know, it basically just comes down to whatever rolling die. Sure, to, sure. To I mean, <laughs> intrinsically, the opposite of all the good stuff <laughs> is going to be the bad stuff, exactly. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so, well, but, okay, one, one thing I had, uh, really the one main thing I had was just fragility of the game Hmm. if if the game and i i mean that's not distinct to cooperative games i i realize that if the game is fragile and the game systems are fragile then that doesn't really make a good game but the immediate example that came to my to my mind was the mind okay yeah are you familiar with that one karen no i'm not so it's just it's just a deck of cards numbered one through one hundred uh, during the first round, everyone will receive one card without verbal or... Oh, I have played this. Yeah. Right. Or physical communication. You need to try to play those cards sequentially from 1 to 100, depending yeah. on what you're dealt. Now, that game, I love that game. So much fun. I had a hell of a time. My family loves it. Um, everyone I played with it loves it. So much cheating goes on in that game. Yeah. But... Yeah. Right, uh, but okay, whatever. It is what it is. It's just supposed to be a quick little card game. I mean, you you can play it like six or seven different times depending on how terrible you are at it. But the game is, if you want to be competitive, the game is so fragile. A single player can destroy the experience of yeah. that game. Good um, point. And I have, I have experienced that as well. So <laughs> I don't know, like. Uh, I don't know if that is the best example because technically it is a cooperative game, but I wouldn't really classify it. That wouldn't be my first designator yeah. for that game, really. But it's good to illustrate your point. Oh, where yeah, one absolutely. player can bring down a if it just whole yeah, game if, no if, if a single bang. player can destroy an entire game, that's not that's not good. That's not good. And I think that also basically means that maybe the players have too much agency over the game yeah i don't know how about uh what what have you got there karen um in terms of what makes a bad game i would yeah uh, bad game yeah i would um yeah like i again i I think i kind of got to a lot of those points in in terms of what makes a good game i I kind of voiced my frustrations and said well games that don't do this are really good um but i think 
One thing that I like is games that make sure that power is distributed very evenly among players. Um, mm. You know, when you start introducing resources to cooperative games um, and start letting players, you know, like maybe keep cards or trade cards or move them around or something like that, uh, you can end up with players who feel like they're doing a lot more or a lot less than everybody else. And that right. makes for a really bad experience. You know, again, going back to the gold standard pandemic, everyone has their four actions per turn and every single one of those actions has to be used effectively to proceed well in the game. And so I think that's a good example of a way to do it well, but in terms of making it equal, if you, you know, have resources that you're moving around, if you're trading cards and you're giving cards to one person to, uh, to research something or, you know, you start making players more important than others and you end up with these frustrating scenarios where, you know, maybe someone can't do something or they want to contribute, but they can't or they're just funneling away their resources to somebody else and they kind of feel like they're just kind of like being milked all game and that's not a fun experience. So just making sure that like the distribution of actions is equal amongst all the players in whatever form that happens to be, whether it's, you know, building a deck or taking actions moving around on the board or something along those lines. Yeah, that's a good point. And and also I think the power levels of the asymmetric powers need to be as even as possible as well. Yeah, that's Absolutely. my second point. Yeah, because cuz like you said funneling resources somebody if someone has an awesome power and that makes sense that they are the ones using all these resources for their particular power, then you're kind of, again, that takes away player agency because literally this is our best option. It's very clear this is our best option. Why entertain any other types of options? Because we're going to lose otherwise. That's yeah. bad. That's yeah. bad. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. So, I mean, I guess in my case, the the third and final one I would have is whenever it's a game where the players feel that they can or should act independently the majority of the time, without the other player's assistance, when you don't need to rely on your friends, I just think in general that's a bad way to design a co-op game. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of equal. spits in the face of cooperation. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but what would that make? That'd make a bad game. Okay, okay, but out. where is the line for that? You, are you, you're saying like that you could play an entire game? Because obviously there's going to be instances where it's just it will make more sense for a player to possibly go and do their own thing that could contribute to a larger picture overall sure it's where like you know absence of extreme luck that no one player can go off and just win the game just do it completely okay alone. by themselves by themselves <laughs> you know yeah lone warrior takes the broadsword and just right goes in and everyone else can either follow or do something else or yeah there's actually there's some interesting examples of like individualism in co-op games as well um i haven't played it myself but i did watch i think it was a geek and sundry video where they played it uh dead of winter yeah i was thinking of that one too yeah and and the entire thing with that game is that yes it's co-op you need to work together to survive and achieve a common goal but every player also has an individual personal secret objective that they have to complete that nobody else knows about right so they have to do something that's independent of the group with their actions uh, that might not make sense to anybody else on the table and achieve whatever that goal is. And I can't right. remember all the details of the game. I didn't personally play it. But that kind of brought a cool twist to that co-op element where it's like, okay, maybe you have to do something nefarious. Maybe you have to do something that actually hurts the rest of the players, but otherwise you lose. Right. So 
So Dead of Winter is a semi-co-op. It's a kind of co-op because potentially there could be what's called a hidden traitor. And their goal is to sabotage the colony. This is a zombie survival game. I don't know if that came across. Set in wintertime. So as you're traveling to these locations, you're also fighting the elements. And that's a big part of a big part of the game. And, and yes, everyone does have their own individual uh, objective. And to be able to say that you won the game, if you are not the traitor, your colony objective, your colony needs to survive. You You have the... Finish this colony objective, but if you don't do your personal objective, then you don't you don't you don't win. Right? Oh, yes. Okay. So okay. and the game the game mechanics give the players chances to obfuscate exactly the actions that they're doing as everyone is contributing cards, uh, which are the resources from the locations that they travel to and they search for, secretly to a pile that uh is used to judge whether or not you uh, fully satisfied the, uh, the the current round's objective of survival for the entire colony, right? And you know, someone may throw crap, gar- like literal garbage in there, which could take away, which could stop you from completing that objective. And then colony morale goes down, and then people start dying, and you know, like, <laughs> so it can snowball, right? And and you may have an objective that says you need to have a certain amount of gasoline that ends, and you have to possibly throughout the throughout the game, you have to weigh. Okay, can I can do I need to give some of my hoard to the colony to satisfy this objective, or can the colony weather this failure and I still keep my stuff for my end game? So yeah, that is a it's a, is a a big twist on the cooperative play itself. But overall, it is supposed there are mostly cooperative elements. But that's a really good example. And, and when you said, Karen, the thing about hoarding resources, like that was literally the first game that I that came to yeah. mind as you were describing that. Absolutely. Anything else on bad board game design that anybody's got? No, I don't, I don't know. No, I don't really because I feel like it would just snowball into right. board game d- design in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? That's fair. I mean, the last part of this segment, what I wanted to do, which was kind of creative was to see if anyone had any ideas on uh, fantasy co-op games that they would like to see, even if it's just a general idea or an IP that you'd like to see done. Or uh, Kieran, did you think of anything? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a while since you sent me the outline for the episode here. Um, and so <laughs> I, f- I feel like you might not like me for this statement, but um, when I was working as a game designer, I always had this... I wouldn't call it a mantra, but I said it a lot, which was stories don't belong in video games. Stories don't belong in games. And <laughs> I I said it not because I don't think you can have a good story exist in a video game, but that every game that you play should be completely self-sustainable if you strip out every bit of theme. If you take your favorite story game, you know, The Witcher or Mass Effect or something, and you just completely wipe out all the environment art, all the dialogue, and just have a gray character running around in a field, is that game still fun? Um, And I think any game worth its salt should be. Uh, So when it comes to, you know, board game design, when when you kind of sense the the points, come up with fantasy ideas of design or theme, I was like, okay, well, like... you know, get rid of story. <laughs> Whatever. That's not a thing. Um, but what I what I would really like to see a lot more is I think um, uh, I would like to see cooperative actions 
in a lot of these games. Something that I fell in love with the very first week that I was going to game design school was uh, we played this game called Diplomacy. I don't know if you guys have ever played this. But the entire idea of Diplomacy is that it's a military strategy game somewhat in the vein of Risk or Axis and Allies. But you can only ever have uh, one unit on any given space on the map. And you can only issue one attack order per turn. And to attack any other country, you need to attack with two neighboring countries. And since you only have one action, you need to go around the room and talk to every other person at the table and try to convince them to use your their action to help you invade another country. And so that's, that's not a co-op game. It's a competitive game. Everyone's trying to best each other by playing each other. Um, and it was, it was an amazing experience playing it. I only played it once and I might have even bungled the rules a little bit explaining it there, but I loved it so much and I've always wanted to play it again since it's really hard to find a room of people and explain all that to them. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> the, the, the cool thing about that was that there was a key action in that game that you could not win without doing that required another player to consent to participate with it. Um, and maybe that only works in a competitive setting where everyone is vying for their own ability to do their actions. But I think there might be room for that in a competitive or in a co-op setting where it's like, hey, I need to do this. Can I borrow actions from your turn? Or, hey, give me your cards. I'm going to do this cool thing or something like that. And I think attributing an appropriate cost to that would make it. Uh, very interesting because again as we were talking about bad design there you don't want to end up with a scenario where one player is doing everything or you're hoarding resources into one player or anything like that but I think there might be room to like do something where maybe every player writes down their action for the turn and if those turns mat if those actions match up something happens and I think that could be kind of a cool mechanic there so I'd love to see some designers play with actions more in that vein I think that's cool yeah that's that's interesting um yeah, diplomacy is a really cool game. Hey, if you're down for playing it, there we go. We got another player. <laughs> let's, let's sit down for six hours. Let's get three other people, crack open some beers, and, <laughs> and I would diplomatize. Be so <laughs> I, I've seen videos online of like conference scale diplomacy games where people get together in like a conference hall, yeah, and they have the board projected on a big projector at the front of the screen. And they have tables set up, and every table has a team of diplomats at it, like seven yeah. or eight people that are all Whoa. representing one country. And it becomes this huge, like, almost UN discussion of yeah, people those, running those, to different tables yeah. and stuff. Those games I would are very love to cool. do that. That would be super fun. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people um, play diplomacy online, and like, like via mail, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas everyone has basically have like a week to to schmooze with all the other players and then you have to submit your orders by the deadline right and then whoever is in charge of running the game put in all the orders and then all the players see yeah. the see how the board handles that's that's crazy that's really cool i would be down for that yeah I'd probably suck at it but i'd be down yeah no i don't know it is randy and because all of the units are always the same value right there's right. there's one type of unit right yeah and, and I think the really cool thing about that game is that you you only have a set amount of actions per turn, but you can promise as many actions as you want. Right. So you can go to every <laughs> table and tell them you're going to do something or help them. And then when the final action sheet comes through for the turn, 
you know, four people at the table realized you screwed them and they didn't get to do anything that turn. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And, and that's why it's and not And I go go-off never game. make a deal with them again. <laughs> but exactly. And you got to burn bridges like crazy. But the thing is that you can't hold a grudge in that game either because if you stop dealing with someone, yeah. y- you lose the ability to do actions anywhere near them and you just need to. So I, I think I fell in love with the game so much because the first time I played it, we didn't have a single territory taken from us the entire game. Uh, I was able to wheel and deal so hard that wow. that we maintained every territory that we started with and wiped the board. And I was just like, yeah, played you all. That is the opposite of cooperative, but I get oh, what yeah. you're I get what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, you're saying. But yeah, going back to mechanics, forget the storyline, forget the, that <laughs> game in particular. The mechanics, I think, of some sort of uh, actions ticker and the cooperation of doing something with another person to achieve greater gain than a single player could get would be really cool. You know, hey, let's go grab oil from the depot together. That nets us three oil instead of just one independently for each of our trips. Right. You know, that sort of thing would of, be cool. of two options, right? Yeah, Fair and enough. then you're judging whether or not the gain was worth the sacrifice of the action, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's cool. What have you got there, Leland? Um, I didn't really have anything. Okay, um, I'm fantastic. I assumed you would have two. Yeah, I got two. Yeah. And again, these are ideas. Kira, not meaning to offend, both are <laughs> themed, heavily themed. Go for it. Uh, so the first I've got, um, because I love anything mechs, mech related. Uh, I have an idea for a game called Oblivion, which is a game about a giant kaiju. Does everybody here know what kaiju is? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So comes out of the water off the coast of Seattle, and it's like plodding towards the city to destroy it. And I guess this is in a way a you know a ripoff of Pacific Rim, but the idea would be that each player is in you know some sort of very asymmetrical mech to fight this thing you know i had an idea that there's one mech that is really good in the water which is about half the map so you need to support that thing in the beginning as the kaiju's marching towards the city but if ever it gets on the city then that player's really inhibited then you have like a you know a couple support mechs one that buffs attack one that can repair um you've got a tank he doesn't have much uh, attack but he can take a beating and he's strong he can maybe I uh, have a special move that holds up the kaiju for a turn or two, which is really useful. And just the fact that a lot of the each mech would have some sort of supporting action, but to do that, they actually have to move around and be adjacent to the other mech in most right. cases, right. so that you're forcing a lot of movement in the game as well, just to to basically simulate the fact that these things have to move around so much and are having this giant tag team sort of battle. Um, that sounds cool. Yeah, sounds very into the breachish. Uh, yeah. Mind you, you know what's weird is so I'd finished writing that out and then I'm like, hmm, this is like Into the Breach. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, everyone's playing a mech in Into the Breach. <laughs> but, uh... That could actually be rad, though. And like, just literally just an Into the Breach board game. That could be super yeah, cool. Yeah, you know what? And I thought of that after I had written this, but the hard part about an Into the Breach board game is how do you do the predictive mechanic, which is key. You easy. You have okay. You have there's a you there's a deck coming. of tactics per type of dude, right? right. Uh, you'd play on a specific type of map that would have the specific type of enemies, and they have a uh, a smallish action deck of maybe uh, you get more of a variance of things that they can do. And basically, for each one, you form a little row, and oh yeah, the okay. next card is always visible. 
Right. So you know it, it, where it's going to like move and attack up. Yeah, of right. course. Yeah. Just like the game. Of course. That would actually be easy. Even the, the little bugs that come out of the ground, you could easily just have a Absolutely. You have like a little token that, okay, great. You flip over a random card. It's saying things are going to come up here, here, and here. Bada bing, bada boom. You know where they're popping up next time. Hmm. You could put it on Kickstarter, have some rad minis. It would sell like <laughs> fucking hot. Man, it totally would. <laughs> That's not, how do you how do you envision the uh, the kaiju fight working? Like, is it marching towards the city and you have a set amount of turns to kill it, or yes. is it fighting back and attacking each of you? Uh, the kaiju would be fighting back. Um, it would have some attacks. Uh, nothing that's like game breaking. You know, going to kill you in one hit. That's what I thought. Uh, but you're exactly right, Karen. You would have a set amount of turns until this thing marches into the city and everybody loses. And, you know, I, I thought of ideas like, you know, a, a player, there would be a, a big mechanic on self-sacrifice. A player could, you know, detonate their mech and buy an extra turn, but then that player is, you know, done for the game. Right. So is it worth it to blow your, your mech's reactor and hold this thing up for one turn or two? Hmm. So, yeah, just kind of a general idea. But the fact that limited turns of a giant baddie creates that sense of dread. That right, like so right, much. right. Okay, how about you expand that into a campaign game? Oof, I never thought where of that. you are manipulating it like like uh, mech battle or what's that battle, battle tech. tech? You're manipulating your your mech, and you can go out and take actions to scout uh, the kaiju and try to maybe glean some of its abilities so you can build your mech to suit it. And then you have this, Ooh. and then you know the city that you're defending, uh, the damage remains the same. And then throughout the campaign, you're playing maybe a series of games and you have to maybe spend resources to repair the city. And, uh, I just never thought on that scope. Thing. Uh, yeah. I just never thought, that's cool. That's cool. That could be really fun to play, actually, yeah. I mean, it obviously, it needs a lot of <laughs> a lot of meat on those bones, but it could be, it could be pretty fun. Uh, so uh, we didn't actually go over our favorite co-ops. No, I wanted to do that that? at the very end. Um, That's why I said I flipped around things. Oh, okay. But, uh, Kieran, did you have anything else on this, or did you just have that that, uh, that one idea that you brought up? Yeah, that was kind of the one mechanic I had had really been thinking about, because I think I've seen a lot of the other ones that I like represented in other games, but that's something that I kind of noticed was, like, just as a mechanic, I don't think a lot of people have messed with. Okay, cool. Um, my last idea I had was a game called Escape from Thyraxis, which is about a colonization mission to an alien world that went wrong. Uh, the colony ship crash lands, which destroys the oxygen generators. So everyone's just in their spacesuit with uh, a limited amount of turns. Again, that mechanic. So what you have to do is balance survival. So food, water... Uh, Maybe there's a few spare oxygen canisters around for your suit that you can collect. There would be alien attacks that you would need to fend off. But the overall goal is you actually have to go out, explore the crash site in the surrounding area to find enough parts to put together like an escape ship, an escape pod kind of Mm -hmm. sort of jury-rigged ship together. And it's like, well, you know, if two people move to the outskirts here, they're more at risk from the aliens. But... You know, at the other time, you know, other hand, people need to, you know, just resource, harvest resources just to survive. So kind of just balancing people as resources in this game and balancing the two big challenges of survival and then getting off this rock before your oxygen runs out. That sounds cool. 
Did you envision uh, any sort of oxygen sharing system where, you know, maybe two people are running back to the ship, but there's only enough oxygen to get one person there and he throws his tank and you go on without me. <laughs> Toss the baton. <laughs> yes, yes. So actually I did. And oxygen would basically be tokens, just like round cardboard tokens. Um, your suit would have a certain maximum amount. Event cards could like damage your suit to reduce it or allow a repair. And you're right. Yes, it would be... I don't know if it would be a free action, I was thinking, but it would be a simple action to just plug in your suit to the other suit to share oxygen. And that oxygen is kind of the key of what this thing would revolve around as far as lifeblood. And it's like, you know, what Kieran's bringing up, you know, do you do you share oxygen? So you have limited turns, but you still have two players. Or is it like what you said? You're running back to the ship. It's like, buddy, I really don't think I can help here anymore. You know, sorry, I'm getting off this planet. I'm so winning. Godspeed. So it's still cooperative, but not everyone. Well, I was thinking, you know, everyone wins a player like Kieran would definitely go, hey, hey, you know, if you if you give me five oxygen tokens, I'll come back for you. I'm coming back. (laughs) Well, you know what? And and as you're talking about this, I've got this I got this really cool idea where like maybe instead of just limited turns from the time you land, maybe the ship still has a supply of oxygen that you can draw from. Your tank can only hold so much, though. So you have to take multiple trips to and from to gather parts and deliver them. And then you get really interesting mechanics or uh, interactions between players sharing oxygen because you can technically extend your trip by having people walk out together and chaining yeah. their right, tanks. Right, them halfway. Yeah. yeah, meeting them halfway and whatnot. Right. And maybe this is a thing where, like, you know, the further from the ship you go the better parts there are and maybe there's upgrades to the oxygen tanks or storage systems or whatever that happens to be so as you go further out you can collect this stuff or you could maybe pull off a really cool turn one maneuver where one guy runs out and the other guy runs past him and then he stays there and holds his oxygen so that the other guy can get back or you know i I think there could be maybe some cool like kind of relay mechanics that uh, end up happening there yeah, I, that, that could be really cool. I like it. I like it a lot. I just, I want, and I don't even mind if the ship had some residual oxygen, but it has to be finite to a certain level because yeah. that raises the amount of currency right. that, or that raises the value of oxygen sure, sure, sure. as a currency. Right, because the ship, you know, and that would also meter out the difficulty of the scenario that you're playing, depending on how much oxygen starts in your ship. And, you know, even every player could, there's an upkeep phase where everyone has to burn oxygen because they're breathing it. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yes, absolutely. Maybe you can overexert yourself and burn more oxygen, but get more as a sprint action. action. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I'm just picturing very much like Dead of Winter, a series of locations all with their own deck of cards that you would search through. And yes, like you said, Kieran, the further location out, the better that deck is has better stuff in it. So it is a little bit of random and maybe a little push your luck in, in thrown in there too. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right along my line that, that there would be different locations right. where you'd have to sift through stuff and the higher risk locations have better stuff that are further away. I mean, that's basically how it is. The further it's away, the more dangerous right. it is, but then but you know, there's more alien shit. cards yeah, yeah, yeah. in there. That's cool. They're tougher aliens. I like that. So. Let's make it. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, so let's go to our favorite cooperative board games. And uh, Leland, why, why don't we start with you on this? Okay, one? this was super easy. Um, my favorite, actually one of my favorite games in general is the Seventh, seventh Continent. Mm. Uh, it really is a cooperative game. I actually play it solo mostly because it's a really great solo game. But you're just these explorers 
uh, in like the early 20th century is what it's set in. And you are going back to this continent that you had visited, but you're because you're racked with these visions and, and you are you are cursed from your first trip. And to beat that curse, you have to return to this continent. And it's it's just an exploration game. Uh, the, there's a there's a deck of cards that dictate your actions and the items that you build. It's like this multi-purpose deck. If the deck runs out, that also represents your life force. So if you burn through that, then you're dead. Uh, there's like random events you can get up, and there's challenges you have to meet by spending these cards. It's just really really cool. Such a neat game too. It's literally just there's no board. It's just a series of these little square cards that you build the board depending on where you explore cool. super cool that's cool and then my second one i don't know if it's actually my second favorite co-op but one i really liked was this war of mine oh it was just hard it was it was just so oppressing but i got the dread from it <laughs> yeah that's true i just liked it i mean like, i'm a fan of the video game too and they did such a good job of porting it to the board game oh version. man it felt like the video it game really so did. Much. it really did I'll give it that. Yeah, so that one, those are like two tops for me. Two tops. Yeah. What about you, Karen? Um, this one's a little tough because I, I honestly haven't played a ton of co-op board games. I, I have played a decent number. I think the one I go back to the most is The Captain is Dead, the one I was talking about earlier. And I actually yeah. brought it up when we were talking about bad mechanics, but it is a really fantastic game for a ton of other reasons. Um, I think it's, so far in the games I've played, it's the one with the most dynamic elements at play that can go wrong it has the most crises and you know things that you can take care of and what i really like about it as well is that over the course of the game you get to build up like abilities and almost immunities to some of the incidents that happen on the ship you know you can gain upgrades that prevent you from drawing cards at certain times or that um keep certain systems from going down or something like that. And I really enjoy that there is like this kind of sense of progression where you do feel like you're kind of starting to overcome the horde as it comes at you. And like I said, I do have some minor gripes with kind of the way it rounds itself out towards the end. Uh, but it is a fantastic game and it's one that a lot of my friends really love. So we kind of, uh, have gone back to it a number of times over consecutive board game nights. I, uh, I really like it. The uh, The only other one I would maybe mention, and this is kind of towing the line, cheating the rules a little bit, but um, it's a game called Cutthroat Caverns that I really like. Um, <sighs> yeah. And it's a it's, little cheaty, but yeah, ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's and I've when I've pitched it to people, I've called it a co-opetition game um, <laughs> because there is a lose state where everybody loses, and to avoid that, everybody does have to work together to some degree. Uh, but the main mechanic in that game is that basically every uh, round you're faced with a monster or some sort of challenge. And you play cards to deal damage to this monster to kill it. But only the person who gets the last hit on the monster gets the reward for killing it. <laughs> um, and at the end of the game, once you've gotten through all the caverns, the person with the most points wins. So there is a singular winner. But... Uh... There could be no winner if you guys don't, you know, buck up the cards to get through and kill the monsters. So it's an interesting one because you have this element of like, okay, we're just going to lose. Like, 
I want to play another turn of this game where you might sacrifice a monster and give it to somebody else, but you're really trying to like toe that line and hope that people don't have enough damage cards to finish it before it comes back around to your turn. And there's a bunch of, you know, fun mechanics where you're messing with people. But again, that comes from me being a hyper competitive gamer and uh, I really like beating people. So that's kind of my cheaty answer to this question is uh, it's a, it's a co-op <laughs> game where I still get to win. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I feel, yeah, that doesn't mean I'm like the same way. It means like, I, I totally feel where you're coming from. So that's, that's cool. My first one's going to be no surprise to Leland at all. It's Flashpoint by yeah, our Flashpoint. rescue. Uh, <laughs> have you ever played Flashpoint, Kieran? No, I haven't. Okay. Flashpoint is uh, obviously a cooperative game. Um, you are firefighters. You're a, like a platoon of firefighters. It is okay. asymmetrical. Uh, you have different skills. Uh, the fire kind of populates uh, in different rooms. Like the board is like a... Um, I think it's a house or an apartment. Yeah, it's a There's building. Two. Yeah, building. And so you you've got to you know put out flames, but you have to put out the source of the fire. The fire can spread. It can come out in new locations. Uh, you have people at rescue. You've got to actually rescue people and pull them out. But there's some false flags. There's some people that where you there's tokens where you're not 100 percent sure if it is a person. But if you right. go and flip them over, um, it either is or it's not. Right. And then you may have gone out of your way. Uh, might be a cat, might be a dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something you gotta save. <laughs> or like from Backdraft, one of my favorite movies of all time could be a mannequin that they rescue. By accident. <laughs> uh, but that's partially where I like it so much is because I'm just such a big fan of the Backdraft movie. The second, I don't know, maybe maybe you will think this doesn't count, but in D&D 4th Edition, I mean, D&D is a cooperative game. You'd agree with me, right? But okay. <laughs> when I played 4th edition, they had the Warlord character, which is what I was. And he uh-huh. was like the most cooperative, amazingly fun character I've ever played in a role-playing game. And all his powers function, well, not every single power, but most of them function to like do something, like make a hit, and then you choose someone else to take a turn or an right. action. Right. Or then like you choose someone else to delay and you change everything. And Damn, if it didn't feel so cooperative to me in all the best possible ways, it was so satisfying to pull off some like moves by donating like uh, or giving someone a hit and you like smash a critical hit to take down a boss. Right, right, right. Oh, it just felt so good. So for me, just as a cooperative individual playing that specific character who's not in fifth edition, it, that was D and D for me. That was my best. Hey, that's a that's a cop out, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> If you're gonna get cutthroat caverns, I guess you can get D and D fourth edition warlord class. <laughs> well, it's more. I would have. I it's get a cooperative, but I'd say like D and D fourth edition. You gotta say D and D is a cooperative game. Um. Okay. Yes, but again, it's like the mind. It's that's not the first thing yeah. that comes. That's not an immediate. Really, when you play D and D, the first thing that comes. I'm to not. Mind isn't a cooperative game? No, no. Just because really? that's not what I think of when I think of tabletop rpgs or rpgs yeah. in general huh because i i think i think the separator there for me at least would be that they're um you know you don't win D. you you experience the story you know right. you, you go along for the ride but there isn't a win condition there isn't a eradicated the diseases there isn't a survived the winter there is just you know whatever the the uh, dungeon master comes up with which is right. you know it's a it's a fantastic experience in and of itself but like it is a cooperative experience 
Um, but I would also say that it kind of toes the line. It's in a different domain than cooperative board games. That's fair. That's fair. And I'll admit that partially it was lack of options because the only other thing I was going to pick was Pandemic, and I knew we were going to talk the hell out of it. So I figured, (laughs) well, I'll throw it in to at least have interesting conversation Yeah, by throwing a curveball. Sure. No, that's good. I Um, mean, I get what you're saying. It just kind of lends exactly to the mechanic that Kieran wants to see more of, right? That. Yeah, the third I had, I don't know, Leland, would you would you say this is a cop-out as well? Because Probably. it is two sides fighting each other. But okay. Axis and Allies Global, I... In, okay, uh, okay. again, you're, we're really just getting down to splitting hairs between, like, a team game and a co-op game. Right. Yes, there okay. are cooperative aspects to all different types of genres right. of game, but... Right. I had a star beside that one because I really didn't want to bring it up. See, Axis and Allies falls under the category of war game because that's like the largest umbrella of which that type of game would go under. As Then you split it into all these subcategories, right? That's where you're yeah. really splitting the hair. Right. It? Right. That's fair. Yeah. All right. I shall speaketh no more all right. on that subject. Okay. Um, end of show stuff. But first, some last plugs for, for Kieran. Yes. Just Plug go, your site. Go over your Plug stuff you. again here for the end of the show. Absolutely. Cool. So I'm... Kieran Wasselishan, I'm a product manager for ELO Entertainment. Uh, if you're into Dota 2 or Overwatch, check out our websites, Overbuff and Dota Buff. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the future here. Um, and I also play Dota competitively and stream occasionally. You can find me on Twitch and Twitter at uh, Captain Canuck Dota. It's my handle. And uh, yeah, we, you know, my team just played a really cool tournament last week at the Gaming Stadium here in Vancouver, a big local uh, tournament. They're really awesome. Shout out to those guys. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. It was a blast, and uh, it was awesome getting to kind of share esports with you and get to talk about some board games. Yeah, yeah, it really was interesting stuff. It's just like that, just something that's so kind of just out of my purview. It's really nice to get some insider baseball on it. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah, it legit was mind changing in right. a way for me, in, a, in all the best possible ways to see where it is now and where it's headed. Um, so that was awesome. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your expertise there. Yeah, sure absolutely. And all your handles and stuff will be in the show notes for the episode for any listener that wants yeah. to, to check out. And this, uh, same with the, the website and all that stuff. Uh, but for us, our end of the show stuff, uh, the, our website is ttpodcast.com in which you can find our, our said show notes. We have some written content up there, which we will hopefully be updating with some new stuff uh, very soon. I've been Leland Steele. I've been Moby. And I've been Kieran Oslish. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.